Hello, and welcome to Throughline to the Fourth Sector, where we're exploring fourth sector capitalism and impact investing as an invitation to innovation and changing the world. I'm your host, Phil Dillard, founder of Throughline Networks. This episode features a conversation with Philip Owen, founding member of Geosphere. Philip is an environmental activist and pecan farmer based in South Africa. As a founding member of Geosphere, he represents a nonprofit environmental organization that has been campaigning against afforestation, deforestation, and the overall forest industry for more than two decades. In this episode, Philip talks about the impactful stories that heavily influenced his career in ecoactivism and the importance of organic farming and regenerative agriculture. He also discusses the significant differences in environmental impact between afforestation and deforestation, as well as providing fascinating insights into the undervalued ecological importance that grasslands provide. To learn more about Philip's work, visit www.netscraft.net. That's www.netzkraft.net. And search Geosphere, G-E-A-S-P-H-E-R-E. And to learn more about our work at ThruLine Networks, visit ThruLineNetworks.com. You can find links for both companies in the show notes. Now sit back and enjoy this conversation with Philip Owen, founding member of Geosphere. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Throughline to the Fourth Sector. I'm here today with Philip Owen, the founding member of Geosphere, a non-for-profit environmental organization based in South Africa. Good morning, Philip. How are you doing today? Good morning, Phil. No, I'm doing well, thanks. Uh, nice to be on your podcast. Great to have you. It's uh, rare that I get another Phil's of the World Unite moment, but I always appreciate them. It's a beautiful, beautiful day here in San Francisco. How are things in South Africa? It's a nice day. It's been cloudy. It's uh, starting to go to the winter time now, yeah, where I am. So it's getting a little bit chilly in the evenings. And yeah, it's going to be a cold winter, this one, because we've had a, a lot of rain. We've had uh, more than a thousand millimeters, where normally we have around 700. That's the average. We could definitely use that uh, that up here because we've had a very, very dry winter and we've had a very, a very little snow. We're looking at drought because of the lack of snowpack and maybe even limitations on freshwater and hydropower for the, the San Francisco Bay Area because it's been so so dry and god forbid we'll see the next fire season because you know part of the reason we're here today was before we met online i was actually walking through the redwood forest with a friend from germany and i was just, just so excited to show it to her and then i walked through and some of the trails were inaccessible and it was the obvious impact of the recent forest fire it, it looked like it had traumatized the forest We've had so much conversation about forest and the great forest protection and things we can do. And, you know, your comments about what's going on in South Africa were really important to us. And we wanted to kind of bring you on and get to know you a little bit. So we'll start in the first section of just learning to learn a little bit more about you and, and your journey. So when people ask you, you know, about what you do, how do you describe what you do? Well, you know, mainly I represent an environmental organization called Geosphere which for more than two decades have been campaigning against afforestation or reforestation or the forest industry. Yeah, that's taken up quite a, a large part of my, of my life. 
but what pays the bills is a, a small ecotourism business that our family owns in an area where, you know, it's an ecotourism area, including, of course, monoculture timber plantations. But, um, yeah, it's a small little theme park. Um, and then we have a, a sort of a small pecan nut orchard, which we manage organically and a, a small piece of property, which we try and do some, implement some of these land restoration ideas and projects. We've got some citrus, we've got a little bit of avocados, I'm trying to get some uh, coffee going and then mainly pecan nuts. But pecans 40 years ago was recommended as a viable crop for this area. So people were planting pecan nuts. But I mean, since then, they've seen that actually it's too moist and the, the nuts are prone to a kind of a scab disease. We're hanging in there. Most of the farmers have taken out their pecans and uh, we are trying to manage them organically and heal them back to some form of health. We haven't been using any chemicals on them for more than 30 years. And there's some trees which consistently give good nuts. But yeah, that's what we do. Manage a small property uh, sort of an eco-friendly way and, and trying to promote ecological awareness in the region through this organization, Geosphere. Outstanding. I can't wait to get more into that discussion because it's something that I've heard actually now on, well, at least two continents. I talked about some of the other folks who are doing work in Africa, in Asia, around organic farming with nut trees actually in Australia too. Organic farming, regenerative agriculture in a smart way versus monoculture, timber and monoculture agriculture. And we'll get into that a little bit. I definitely want to make sure we talk a little bit about you before we start talking more about, about the work. But um, so you said it's a family owned park and, and orchard. So I'm guessing that that started from the beginning. But when did you start getting into the eco-activism and campaigning against the forest industry? Well, there was a particular piece of grassland which I often visited as a younger man. And then once I was away for a couple of years and on returning, I found that uh, much of that grassland was planted up to pine trees. First, they were tiny tree seedlings, but on subsequent visits, you could see that obviously the trees were growing. And as the trees were growing, the grassland vegetation was thinning out. Ultimately, not enough light can penetrate through the tree canopy to sustain the undergrowth. And there is this one particular kind of plant, it's called a matakwan, um, normally creeps along the soil. And completely out of character, this plant was trying to lift itself from the soil, trying to reach for the light which was diminishing. You know, It really had a big impact on me because I could feel that these plants are fighting a losing battle. You know, there's no ways that they can survive in those conditions. And, you know, then it just didn't make sense to me. How can we transform these massive climax primary grassland regions? I mean, mostly here it used to be grasslands um, with pockets of indigenous forests in the deep gullies and, of course, along the riparian zones, along the river, mostly where it's moist and fire cannot get to it. But these local grasslands are, well, first of all, they're very, very threatened you might know that grasslands globally is the world's most threatened vegetation type. The prairies in South and North America, the pampas in South America, the steppes in Russia, and the Southern African grassland complex of almost, well, more than 80% have been irrevocably destroyed. And the reason for that is that grasslands make excellent agricultural soils. So most of it's been plowed up worldwide. And the local grasslands is home to an estimated 4,000 
different kinds of indigenous plants. Most of them not grasses, but wildflowers with roots and bulbs underground. It's just crazy for me to think that we can, that we could have allowed to transform these primary grasslands, biodiverse, life-giving grasslands, to massive monocultures. And the scale is just off the chart. I mean, in our province of Mpumalanga, in northeast of South Africa, there's around 650,000 hectares of these alien timber plantations. And remember, that's exclusively alien trees. So pines and eucalyptus. And in South Africa, it's much bigger. It's about one and a half million hectares in total managed. And then a further 1.5 million hectares of invasive plantations. But yeah, that's where I started, you know, thinking about the fact that this is not right. And then I heard a guy called Wally Mena. He used to be the chairperson of the Timberwatch Coalition South Africa. I heard him speaking on the radio. And uh, he was just saying all these things that I felt, you know, about the, the impacts of these plantations, not only on the grasslands, but on water, on, on, on soil, you know, sustainability, on people's lives and livelihoods. Heard him speaking on the radio, made a big impression on me. I then contacted him through the radio station, phoned them to find out his number. And the two of us became good friends. He was a decade or so older than me and a, a real, real hardcore campaigner in this forest sector. So he said to me that that was back in 1999. And he suggested that we have a meeting in the local town, which we then did. It went under the heading Southern African Water Crisis, because at that time we were in a water scarcity. And uh, that got quite a lot of people together. And we spoke about different impacts of plantations on, on plants, on animals, on birds, on people. And ultimately, um, I was mandated from the floor to keep on circulating the information about them. Basically, that's how the organization got started. Ultimately, in 2003, we got a, a small grant from the Global Green Grants Fund based in the U.S. And that allowed us to host a meeting, which we call Timber Plantations, Impacts, Future Visions and Global Trends. That was really quite a big, well-attended meeting with some international stakeholders there. I mean, Swaziland is a country that is quite close to us, less than 80 kilometers the border. And... 10% of Swaziland is planted to these monoculture timber plantations, you know, in some of the most arable soils. And that all, I mean, it's, it's not for small scale and it's for big industry, you know. 2005, we got a bit of the Swedish Society for Nature Conservation, SSNC, and that allowed us actually to employ coordinators in Swaziland, coordinators in Mozambique. We were heavily involved in strengthening civil society in South Africa and the water sector. Diosphere is one of the organizations that was there, uh, one of the founding organizations in the South African Water Caucus, which is a broad coalition of organizations involved somehow in the water sector in South Africa. That was just before 2003, when the World Summit on Sustainable Development was hosted here. So we've been very much involved in South African civil society and we've been campaigning against this model of monoculture timber plantation for many, many years. We've developed good friendships and networks. We're part of the Global Forest Coalition, which is an organization network with more than 150 participating organizations globally. Part of the World Rainforest Movement, I was fortunate to have met Ricardo Carrere, 
He used to be the coordinator for the World Rainforest Movement based in Uruguay. He used to say that afforestation is much worse than deforestation. Because with deforestation, a company would come in, they would harvest, log the trees, they would take out the best timber, but they would leave some stuff, they would leave some of the smaller trees, they would leave some of the smaller bushes, and they would leave again. You know, And within uh, 50, 100 years, that forest system would regenerate and you'd hardly notice that there were people there. But with afforestation, these companies come in, they do exactly the same thing, destroy the indigenous diversity, plant their timber plantations and stay, making it really, really difficult, in some cases completely impossible, to rehabilitate towards the indigenous vegetation types. And of course now we can see the impacts. We can see, you know, biological diversity impoverishment. We can see flash flooding. We can see soil erosion. We can see degradation of our river systems. And in our context, that's got nothing to do with climate change. It's got everything to do with the way that we've mismanaged our catchment areas. You know? And then another incident that happened, which also sort of uh, motivated me to become involved, more involved in the environmental sector, there's a cement reservoir, a water reservoir, maybe 60,000 liters. And it used to contain some fish. And I came upon this reservoir, and there was a, it's called African darter, um, also called the snake bird dives in the water, catches fish. And this bird was just coming out of the reservoir. It was trying to catch fish in the water and it just came out and it sat on the opposite rim of this reservoir. It didn't note me because it was looking the other way. It's a beautiful bird. Its neck has got like an S shape. When it's swimming in the water, it looks like a snake's head that's bobbing out of the water. Beautiful, beautiful bird. Quite big. And I heard later that they could, they can be quite vicious. But when I looked at this bird closely, I could see that around its legs were bundles and bundles and bundles of fishing wire, dried up fishing wire, you know. And I thought that I'd, that I can scare this bird. I thought that I'm going to creep around this reservoir and then jump up, give the bird a fright because there was a big thorn tree, acacia thorn tree on the other side of the dam. And I thought that no doubt it'd get entangled in that tree and that maybe then I would be able to catch him and remove the wire, you know, the fishing wire. And it happened more or less like that. You know, I gave it a fright that flew up into the tree. It became entangled, but it was struggling so much that pieces of the wire started breaking off and this bird managed to escape, fly away. Now, you know, I was a little bit disappointed because I would have liked to, to see it and make sure that all of that stuff is removed. And it just brought home to me how we've stuffed up the local environment, you know, that yeah, in semi-wilderness areas, there's still an abundance of semi-wilderness, still a lot of wildlife, that it can be, you know, that it could have degraded to such an extent with birds which depend upon the local river system cannot fish there without becoming entangled in fishing wire. And then there's one last incident which I can uh, describe to you, which happened, which also helped to motivate me and several others on this journey. A couple of years ago, 10, 12, 13 years ago, out of the bush came a bush pig in this environment. Now, bush pigs, they're normally nocturnal. You don't see them walking around at day, and they avoid people like the plague. But this bush pig came out of the bush, and it walked straight up to a couple of workers at the local chicken farm. Um, on close inspection, they could see that this poor bush pig around its mouth 
there was a wire cable snare that a poacher had placed in the animal path. So that animal had become ensnared in this wire cable snare. He had managed to break it, but he couldn't remove it from its mouth. It was tightly, tightly drawn across its mouth. It couldn't open its mouth to eat or drink water or communicate to other members of its pod. And to me, it was just interesting that that animal, you know, decided to go to the people, not expecting help, I'm sure, but expecting to be put out of its misery quickly, you know, rather than spending days or weeks in the in the bush dying from hunger and thirst to be put out of its misery quickly. That's what happened. But that inspired also a bunch of us to start a small organization locally, which employed a couple of game rangers. They were just, you know, involved in searching for, locating and removing these wire cable snares. During the lifetime of that organization, more than 14,000 of these wire cable snares were removed, not only from our valley, but there were also some uh, landowners in the adjoining valleys, which contributed to the organization and whose land area was surveyed. But now things have changed a lot. I mean, there's more fences, there's more people taking, you know, internal care of poaching. But unfortunately, the way people see these animals, they see them as they to be exploited, you know. And of course, if you are impoverished and you're struggling to find enough food for your family, then those animals become fair game, you know. In South Africa, you know, some say up closing in on 40% unemployment. So, of course, that's part of the problem. You know, we need to create more jobs. So that's where forest or landscape restoration comes in, because jobs can be created in that way. Yeah, so that's how I became inspired. I mean, a couple of things that put me on this path. Thank you so much for sharing all that. There's so much to dig into. You know, a lot of times people talk about local and indigenous populations and you get an image of some tribe that lives in the jungle or something. But I mean, I think you painted a great picture of the grasslands of South Africa and one that says, look, this isn't even talking about the climate change components. It's just talking about mismanagement of the grasslands that lead to all these negative and undesired outcomes for the people who live there, for the other stakeholders who are in this property, while certain interests are making profits. And clearly you're not anti-business, but you're anti-harmful practices that really damage the ecosystem. Let's talk a little about the grasslands themselves, because we talk a lot about forests and rainforests and people talk, uh, I think generally that gets a lot of conversation, but I don't think grasslands do. And you talked about their importance to water, to soil, uh, to animals and people. And when we talk about rainforest, we talk a lot about the under the canopy, the hidden value of the rainforest, because some people slash and burn the rainforest to put in palm plantations or corn plantations or graves for cattle, things like that. And you describe the degradation of the grasslands for timber. Can you talk a little bit about what we know that grasslands do in a positive way for the local ecosystem? Yes, of course. Well, first, uh, let me say that the grasslands have evolved and were formed over the past 200 million years. Actually, different vegetation types superimposed over each other. Once it's been fragmented, once it's been destroyed, it is almost impossible to get back. I mentioned before that the local grasslands, which is called the Northeastern Mountain Sauerfeld, is home to an estimated 4,000 different kinds of indigenous plant species, of which only about 10 or 11% are grasses. 
So the bulk of the floral biodiversity in a grassland are not grasses, but plants like forbs, you know, wildflowers. If you think about 4,000 different kinds of plants, plants create habitat for other components of the ecosystem. You know, so in terms of insects, uh, small birds, birds, mammals, reptiles, grassland is just incredibly biodiverse. It's got carbon sequestration functions. Of course, it's very good at sequestering carbon. And there's insects, for instance, like termites, which literally bury the carbon underground. So uh, grassland have also got services like water retention. It's like a sponge. It holds the water back when it rains and allows it slowly the time to seep into the underground aquifer. So if you destroy the grassland, you destroy that service. And we can see now more soil erosion, thus more flash flooding. Grassland is the least responsible for this uh, hydrophobicity that's induced into the soils. Pine trees is bad, but eucalyptus is the worst. They induce a sort of a hydrophobicity in the soil where there's a, a thin waxy coating which covers the soil grains, inhibiting water penetration. And this, of course, or this is made worse by fire. So a fire in a timber plantation is devastating to the soils, it literally because it's so hot. You know, um, Interesting about grasslands, it's a fire-driven vegetation type, so it needs fire. Some call fire the lifeblood of the grassland. If you remove the fire, you destroy the grassland. You know, that's how important fire is to the grassland. Of course, timber plantations, they don't want fire in timber plantations. So grasslands adjoining timber plantations are very regularly being burnt and they're being burnt at the wrong time of the year according to most scientists in the know because naturally the grassland would burn very late in the winter season early spring when there's high likelihood of of, of lightning induced fires with the early spring rains then the grassland is very 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 dry and it burns fast and furious and it kills any tree seedlings which might have seeded into the grassland. If you burn too early, like we do now, we burn uh, even around this time, you know, people are already April, May, June, people burn. That's just when the grassland is dry enough to be able to be burnt. And of course, then it's easier because it's a safer burn when the grassland is not that dry. But it doesn't burn with the same intensity. So it doesn't kill any tree seedlings which might have seeded into the grassland. And they actually take hold and, you know, become stronger. And of course, this is problematic because it leads to this phenomenon called bush encroachment, where even indigenous trees are slowly but surely invading into the grassland and transforming it to more of a kind of a savanna, but with a definite linked biodiversity impoverishment. There's entire trees which grow in the grassland underground. If you should Google underground forests, you'll definitely get references to these interesting trees. In our region, they're called plowbreakers or plugbreakers, my native language, which obviously refers to the fact that a farmer would still be plowing the grassland, and the next moment this plow would be hooked by a massive tree trunk underground. So these trees, the roots, the trunks, the stems, everything is underground, only leaves protruding above soil level. Of course, this is adapted to fire. There's other plants called pre-rainflowers. Really fascinating. They don't need rain. All they need is fire. So as soon as the fire has burnt through the grassland, 
You go there two, three days later, multitude of flowering plants, small little flowers. That's the opportunity. They've got stored the reserves of water in their underground bulbs. As soon as the grassland have burnt, they shoot flowers because then the pollinating insects can see them and pollinate them. Once the grasses grow back, they disappear under a sea of grass. You know, it's an absolutely fascinating and completely undervalued vegetation. Let's take a quick pause to talk about one of my favorite companies, Caspian Studios. Caspian Studios is a podcast as a service company. They make podcasts for B2B companies like Dell, Oracle, Snowflake, VMware, Asana, and many more. In fact, they make this very podcast. They are the best marketing investment I've ever made. If your company wants to start a podcast or video series, the only choice is Caspian Studios. Look, making podcasts is a ton of work. Prep, interviews, scheduling, recording, audio engineering, publishing, the list of tasks never ends. But if you use Caspian Studios, they do all the heavy lifting for you and deliver with world-class quality. They also build the audience by running growth marketing campaigns. Don't waste the time trying to make it yourself. They'll get your podcast live in 60 days. The team is super accessible and friendly and can brainstorm ideas with you for free. Make your podcast rise above the noise. Head over to CaspianStudios.com to learn more. And now, back to the interview. It's interesting that I was just going to ask the question about the value of it, right? Because when we talk about rainforest, we talk about the hidden value of the rainforest, whether it's ecotourism or whether it's things you can learn from the plants and the flowers for, for drugs or for other things, or if it's the impact that it has on other parts of the ecosystem, like water, soil, animals, carbon sequestration, things like that. I'm curious if you're seeing opportunities for that hidden value of the grasslands and where you see those opportunities. I see it for sure. And I, and I see it also in combination with the utilization of indigenous knowledge. Our organization have developed very strong ties and links with some of the local traditional health practitioners because African traditional health practitioners, of course, are dependent upon the, you know, the plants and the animals of the bush to prepare their medicines. So, of course, you know, many of the medicinal plants are in fact found in the grassland. And now that the grasslands are, have been, you know, changed to such a large degree, the areas where these kinds of plants, these medicinal plants are still available, they're becoming few and far between. So that's why we've joined ranks with these indigenous health practitioners and why we often collaborate on joint activities to raise awareness about the fact that, you know, the nature is important, and not only for the medicinal plants, of course, but for all the ecosystem services that it provides. And in our region, I can really say that our rivers are in jeopardy. And of course, water is life, you know. Eucalyptus roots have been measured 60 meters into the soil profile. 60 meters. The average indigenous trees, they've got root depth of about seven meters. So 60 meters, that's how deep eucalyptus can go and mine groundwater. So you're saying the eucalyptus are basically stealing water from the local trees, but also from the ecosystem, from the folks who would drink the water, who would use the water for the plants, animals, and humans who would use the water for survival? That's why eucalyptus are also called the selfish tree, because it uses more water than what actually rains upon it. In the wintertime here, you see that most of the indigenous trees drop their leaves. You can see their skeletons. 
and indicating that they are not utilizing water because they know that water is scarce in the winter and that the other components of the ecosystem also needs to survive. But these pines and eucalyptus and wattle, of course, they alien to the region. They evergreen with deep rooting systems, so they continuously tap into the water. It's said that eucalyptus can use about 600 millimeters of annual rainfall. So if you live in an area and there's just eucalyptus plantations, you get 600 millimeters of rainfall, all of that will go to the eucalyptus. None of it will go to the river systems. Pines use about 400 millimeters of rainfall on average. And these statistics are really, really well documented. In fact, back in 1915, farmers were already complaining about the impact of afforestation on water, on stream flow in South Africa. And in 1935, there was a Commonwealth Forestry Conference that was held in South Africa. And the then Minister of Forestry and Agriculture, he initiated a paired catchment, which actually took place in various parts of our country. And it was ongoing for almost eight years, where they did paired catchment studies and, you know, first measured the hydrology of these catchments and then planted one of them up to timber and see how they respond, you know. So that research has been ongoing for many, many years, for almost 80 years, as I said, and there's a very valuable data set that's been uh, compiled. In fact, if you go to our YouTube channel, you can get a video on that. It's called uh, Timber Plantations and Water Use. It's an interview with, with a scientist who's from that who was involved with those catchment studies. But yeah, impact on water is absolutely radical. And of course, that leads to conflict because we're in a water scarce region. Wow, that's a very heavy, heavy story. So before we go on to talk a little bit about solution, I'm curious how you you said that a lot of this is just about management, but the impacts of climate change people are seeing anywhere. Can you talk about the the recent impacts of climate change that you you might be seeing in South Africa? Well, you know, it's definitely getting warmer. I was at a, at a recent workshop where where it was, there was a presentation that estimates that we will have experienced a 60% drop in, in stream flow as in as few as 15 years. And this is not primarily due to less rain, because the rain actually it seems as we're getting more rain lately, but due to warmer conditions. So, uh, of course, much more evaporation from the system. That's why one of the things that we say is that the, these dams must be broken down, you know, decommissioned. Because dams is not, you know, normally when it's really dry and you need the water, the dams are also empty. But of course, you know, a river is not only a movement of water, it's also a movement of sediment. And when you block it with a dam wall, the sediment starts filling up behind the dam wall, completely changing the characteristics of, of our rivers. It's said that the average dam in South Africa silts up at about 2% each year. So that gives the average dam a lifespan of a mere 50 years, you know. So one should really think, is it worth it to, to make such big changes to the natural ecosystem? Shouldn't we rather store the water where it is supposed to be stored underground, you know, in underground aquifers and manage our catchment so that we can actually store that water underground, you know? But yeah, most of the impacts that I see locally as I mentioned, you know, the weather has been relatively constant. We acknowledge that there is change, changing conditions, but generally it's been relatively constant. But there's been massive biological bio, bio, biodiversity impoverishment. There's massive soil erosion. There's now increased flash flooding, which we never had in the past. And all of that 
as is related to the fact that uh, our catchments have been changed to industrial monoculture timber plantations. There's also new studies which reveals that when you plant a timber plantation, you are actually contributing to carbon emissions for the first couple of decades. It's only once the system stabilizes that it becomes a carbon sink and that it can become good at sequestering carbon. And it's not the trees primarily responsible for sequestering carbon. It is the living ecosystem. And the more diverse that living ecosystem, the more adept at sequestering carbon, you know? You know, I hear often people say, yeah, but uh, forest cover worldwide is increasing. And it's true that, you know, there might be more trees being planted, but a timber plantation doesn't constitute a forest, you know. The forest is more than just trees that's single-aged, single-sized in straight rows, you know. I understand that in the USA, there's only 4% of the original forest cover left. So the bulk of the forests that you know in America are planted forests and also impoverished from a biological point of view. In Sweden, for example, they've got 1.5% of the original forest cover still there. Between 15 and 2% of the original old-growth forests are still standing. The bulk, the, the majority of the forests there are also planted forests, also mostly monocultural. There is a big difference, though. In the north, it's colder climates, so the trees take a much longer time to mature. So it's longer rotation cycles. And within those longer time frames, there's more opportunity for diversity to become established. So in northern forests or timber plantations, you would find some berries, some ferns and some mosses because they become established over that long time frame. In South Africa and in most of the global south, these trees are planted because they grow so quickly. Eucalyptus trees can rotate from 9 to 15 years. So it's short rotation cycles. And pine trees, they take slightly longer, 15 to maybe 30 years. So even here, the pine plantation seems to be slightly more diverse because some trees might have died, more light coming through the canopy, some grass or shrubs that starts growing there, you know. But the short cycles are devastating. It really makes it a high-impact activity. So I just wanted to make it clear that it's not only a problem in the South or in South Africa. It's a particular problem here because of the fast growth of these trees and the, the extractive process that it involves. Um, but it's a similar problem in other parts of the country, just a little bit more, more subtle, if you will. You know? Of course, also most of the timber products that's being the, the, the pulp and the uh, cellulose now, more, more, uh, they're planting more uh, or producing more cellulose. And that's mostly for the export market. So it's the local ecosystems that's being degraded to fulfill really an overconsumption of these products in northern countries. So definitely we should start to consume less, you know. And talking about, if, if I may talk about you know, the, the, the solutions, of, to me, the solutions lies in diversity. We need to diversify and where possible, we should use the uh, appropriate indigenous timber species to be cultivated. You know, if you want, to, if you say that you're in the forest industry, then you must plant a real forest, not only one kind of tree. And a real forest also includes animals. I really think that 
it's vital that we re-include animals into all of these systems because there's a link between the animals and plants and sustainability, you know, the circle of life. We know that very well. And we've managed to, to break that system. In the agriculture sector, of course, we use, you know, chemical fertilizers to bridge that gap. But of course, that, you know, in the long term, that's not a good solution. We have to go back to organic ways. We have to make good compost. And for good compost, you need a good uh, source of organic uh, nitrogen. I really think that animals should uh, find their place again in agriculture, not necessarily just to consume for the valuable manure that they can provide to the system. Which, yeah, we, we have got a, a couple of cattle. We can see increased dung beetles. You know, We can see the environment benefits from animals. And it's uh, really uh, you know, regrettable that we have killed most of the of the big animals from our from our systems. We have to read to that. There's just one example close by to where I am. There's a state-owned plantations where they are still using some horses and mules for some selective timber extraction. That's one of only two such teams left in South Africa. In the past, of course, that used to be the norm where you used animals in the forest forestry industry. Um, so we, as environmentalists and as social activists, support that because it's more labor-intensive. Each animal needs a handler. It's less compaction that the animals bring compared to the heavy machinery. It's a little bit more diversity into the system, and of course, it's less use of fossil fuels. So yeah, that's a small example where using animals, horses and mules in this case, is positive in the sector. And I hope we see more of that into the future. You paint a really good picture of the, the challenge and then start to look at some of the solutions because you know a lot of people start to look towards technology, they look towards process, they look towards manufacturing efficiency. But people who I'm seeing who are finding, who are looking out at the problem a little farther out, they're talking about how we need to be engaged with nature. They're talking about how we need to be thinking more about the future and seeing the trends and where they take us and how there actually can be the engagement with nature and the engagement with the lessons from local local traditions. And what I've heard, you know, when, you, when it first comes to people in the global north, I think people are kind of skeptical. I think people say, eh, you know, what do those, those folks have to teach us? But you pick a very clear picture of how that impacts, how those impacts will flow and how they then show in kind of traumatic evidence to the to local ecosystem. So can we talk a little bit about the actors? What's the role? How do we balance the desire for for-profit business with government and nonprofit and local stakeholders? Because everybody's a hand in this. Everybody's trying to live and survive and extract some sort of value from the ecosystem. But if it's out of hearing you say, if it's out of balance, it creates far more harm than people even anticipate. How do you engage? How do you think about we should balance those those competing, well, seemingly competing interests? So we're talking about the actors, and I was just talking about SAPI, Southern African Paper and Pulp Industry, which is actually a multinational corporation with the offices all over the planet. One of the biggest pulp mills, it's a pulp mill called SAPI Nabadwana, which is not far from where I am. Biggest pulp mill in Africa. They used to produce primarily pulp for paper, but now, due to a global slump in the demand for paper, there's a rise in the demand for cellulose. So the, the industry have been converting some of their processes 
to produce cellulose. So that's good from a financial point of view, you know, for the industry. But to produce cellulose, they require eucalyptus fiber. To produce a pulp for paper, normally they would plant and cultivate pine trees. So we've already discussed the differences in water use between pines and, and eucalypts. Now they are converting to eucalyptus plantation a heavier water user. And we've been pointing out to them that, you know, we don't have the water. Even the government's been saying, oh, you know, we stress in terms of, of water availability. So there used to be this uh, sort of rule that one can convert pine plantations to eucalyptus plantations, but then you have to reduce the size of area that you plant by 35% to compensate for more water being used by the eucalyptus. But they've just been converting one and one. And when ultimately the government said, no, you cannot do that, they took government to court and they managed to convince the judge that converting from pines to eucalypts will have an insignificant impact on stream flow. And I also believe that, you know, they used research studies, which only looks at evapotranspiration. It doesn't look at the entire scenario. It doesn't examine the use of groundwater at all. So, you know, and to me, it feels as if the industry is aware of these impacts. Yet, to chase finances and financial gains, they are willing to manage the environment even harsher. The timber industry gets away with this because they they call it the forest industry. And everybody around the world say, what can be wrong with planting trees? You know, trees is part of the answer. Right. Not part of the problem. Yeah. That's what people t- say in terms of greed. Right. I mean, that's the evidence of it. Instead of really saying we have to change the industry and, and bite the bullet, take some of the costs and take some short term profit change to change the business model. People push and brand and stick with something that damages the earth and, and they're, not, they're not doing the right things. Right. Ten years from now, what does success look like to you? Ten years from now, it would be nice to see some move away from monocultural timber plantations towards a diversified system where indigenous trees are being appropriate indigenous, not exclusively, but indigenous trees must start featuring and start replacing these exotics because, of course, the indigenous trees are locally adapted. We should utilize all the levels of these timber plantations so that we can get more utility out of these these so-called forests. We should include animals into these systems. So if we can have diversified or a move towards diversified real forestry systems into the future, that would be a major plus point. Right now, outside of your company, what project, program, campaign, or creation is really inspiring you? Well, I am I'm inspired by by my fellow local activists. I'm thinking about people like Labani, Semerndlovu, Matthews is from the from the Southern African Green Revolutionary Council campaigning against coal-fired power stations and mining of coal due to the massive impacts that it had on the communities. December Glovo is fighting for our river systems through Pumalanga Water Caucus. People like Mariette Liefering, who's been working in with the Federation for a Sustainable Environment for many, many decades um, on the impacts of coal mining in, in Gauteng, you know, in the main coal mining, gold mining areas of our country. So it's really these uh, activists around me which inspire and also help to motivate me. What are the most important things individuals can do to lead to a better future for the grasslands? 
Well, I think one of the most important things that individuals can do is to become more aware of, of our environment and our impacts. And then something as simple as making compost. Anybody can make compost. Every household can produce a compost and regenerate the soils. So I think that's a good start. And then finally, last question. What's the most important thing governments and NGOs can do to lead to a better future? Well, I think that there should be solidarity amongst NGOs and governments in terms of understanding, you know, at the moment, I think there's still a lot of misconceptions around what is the right answer in terms of these huge environmental challenges we, we face. For example, afforestation being promoted globally as a means of carbon, you know, climate change mitigation. So if, like we've discussed, if a real forest can be established 100%, if real rewilding can occur, if real biodiversity enhancement, enhancement can take place, perfect. But at the moment, we, we you know, just planting trees. So we need to cultivate a, a understanding for what the real impacts are. We need to quantify all the costs. I think that's a, a, a good place to start, is to say quantify all the costs when it comes to reforestation projects and also when it comes to renewable energy projects, you know. It's true that sunshine is renewable, but solar panels and charge controllers and inverters are most, and batteries, of course, are most definitely not. Similarly, wind is renewable and cheap, but these massive wind turbines are not. You know, it's got a cost associated to it. So I think whatever we do, we need to, to make sure that we, that we, you know, calculate all the costs so that we can make wise decisions about land use and, of course, include communities where these developments, any kind of solar farm or wind farm, any kind of project, we need to include the local communities uh, so that they can own you know, that, that project. Uh, Philip, it's really, really great talking with you. I'm, we're going to have to do more of this again. And you've expanded my mind and understanding of the importance of the grasslands and these different ecosystems that will that will definitely matter. I'll share with you more detail about some of the projects that we're, that are where this will be an issue. I just want to say thank you for this opportunity to share because, of course, that's one of the important things that we can do is to use our voice. If we've got a voice, we have to use it. So thanks for allowing me the opportunity to use mine. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Throughlines of the Forest Sector. I'm your host, Phil Dillard. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a rating and tell a friend. To learn more about the forest sector economy, visit throughlinenetworks.com. That's T-H-R-U-L-I-N-E networks.com. Thanks again, and we hope to have you with us in the next episode.